are listening to Rootbound, a podcast about plants for when you're stuck inside. Ah, the smell of fresh basil. It perfects your pizza, it completes your caprese, and now it supports your favorite podcast. Basil, making pesto possible. everybody. Thank you for listening to this episode of Rootbound. I'm the host of the show, and my name is Steve. Rootbound, if you didn't know, is the podcast about plants for when you're stuck inside. And each week, I invite a guest who joins me on the show to share with us all about a plant that means something to them. And then I share with a guest about a plant that means something to me. And through this process, we can all learn more about plants and learn more about each other. If you're a new listener, welcome. If you want to uh, follow Rootbound on social media, uh, I'm at Rootbound Podcast. And you can also visit the website, rootboundpodcast.com, or send me an email, rootboundpodcast at gmail.com. Now, before we meet our guest today, I want to talk about a word that comes into my head often when I'm researching the plants for the show. And that word is epistemology. Do you remember what that word means from, like, high school philosophy class? Um... It's a very interesting word. I actually think about it a lot even outside of the plant context. Epistemology is the branch of philosophy that concerns itself with knowledge. What do we know? What can we know? What does knowing something mean? What is the difference between knowledge and belief? Uh, it's, it gets pretty deep pretty quick when you start thinking about epistemology because you're like concerning yourself with the knowledge of the philosophy that concerns itself with knowledge. Anyway, it's very easy to get lost in that. Um, but when I'm thinking about plants, uh, epistemology comes up in two pretty distinct ways. The first concerns itself with, like, what really can we know about a plant in this case? Um, And when I'm researching plants, it's pretty interesting, you know, we have the world at our fingertips now with the internet, but it's pretty interesting how quickly uh, you get beyond what knowledge is out there related to plants. I'll give you an example. In the episode where I talked about the sunchoke, which is more commonly known as the Jerusalem artichoke, I wanted to get to the bottom of why it's called that. It's a very common name. Everyone refers to that, even though it is not from Jerusalem, nor is it an artichoke. And, and I did a lot of research, and there's a lot of people saying the same answer and over and over again, but getting to the core of that knowledge of why this common name is the common name is actually unclear, and it's interesting that that knowledge is not something that is easily found. And, and perhaps it is, is now unknowable because of history, and that is an interesting epistemological quandary. And I often find myself in that position when researching plants. Like, what can we actually know about a plant can be quite a, a struggle. And then the other way epistemology comes up when I'm talking about plants has to do with the epistemology of the plants themselves. It's very interesting to think about what does a plant know? Can a plant know something? Uh, what does knowledge mean when it comes to a plant? You know, we there's things that plants do that that could be considered knowledge, like a plant knows to grow towards the sunlight, or does it know to grow towards the sunlight? Is that knowledge? It's a very interesting question, particularly, you know, h- humans and the animal kingdom, we're pretty different from animals and insects and things like that, but but in some ways, there's a lot of similarities. But, but plants are this whole other thing, and trying to put your mind 
into the quote-unquote mind of a plant and what a plant knows is a pretty interesting thing. And I find myself considering that a lot when I think about plants. And I think our guest today has some things to share that, that are related to this about, you know, our relationship with plants. And it's a very interesting conversation. So let's meet our guest now. It's an epistemological nightmare. Hi, Isaiah. Welcome to this episode of Rootbound. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Uh, do you have a plant to share with us today? Yeah, it's actually very interesting. So I'm a huge forager. I got into it um, a while back in life. And, you know, I do fungi, plants, and identification of animals. And one of the most interesting plants of living in the East Coast was the Forsythia flower. It's a cool. very unique plant. And I you know, was around it in my neighborhood f- for a few years. And it would always bloom um, during the early win- uh, early spring. Cool. Yeah. I, I, okay. So let's, maybe let's describe it a little bit. I think I know it's yellow. The flowers are yellow, right? Yes. Yes. Awesome. Okay. That's the one I was thinking of. Um, yeah, it's a super cool one. I, I, so I live in Northern Virginia. I think, um, as I recall from your timeline, maybe this was in New Jersey. Is that right? Yeah. In New Jersey, actually. Cool. Cool. Um, yeah, it's, it's a really stunning plant. Maybe you can describe it a little bit more, um, for the audience. Yeah. No, absolutely. So it's one of, I think it's the genus of a flowering plant from the olive family called Oleaceae. Um, I may be pronounced, mispronouncing that one wrong. Yeah, but those it's are always tough. Mo- yeah, mostly, it's mostly native to Eastern Asia, but there are some native ones in Southeastern Europe. So, um, of course, through colonization, these plants have resided um, in the United States today. Um, but there's this very unique component about the plant because they only produce their flowers um, in early spring before the leaves. And these like bright yellow flowers also have, um, they produce this like unique substance. I think it's called like, it's lactose almost, but the lactose only occurs very rarely in natural sources other than milk. So that's what kind of makes this um, plant and this flower um, very unique is that it's a very rare one that lactates on that ends that you would say. Interesting. That's super interesting. And, and, uh, well, you mentioned a little bit with foraging and stuff, but maybe we can get into a little bit like why you chose this plant. Like why is forsythia meaningful to you? Yeah, I think forsythia is very meaningful for me because during the winter time in the East coast, and I'm originally from Los Angeles so when I moved very few years back to the East Coast, um, I suffered with severe seasonal depression, which yeah. is something that I think many people can probably relate to, that the seasons in the East Coast can be a bit brutal. And of course, they're getting warmer because of climate change. But a lot of people can agree that, you know, everyone that, you know, cannot really go out to walk because it's either very cold or um, you have snow on your driveway. There's just so many issues. And so when I started to live in New Jersey, I started to recognize like when the seasons were coming. And it's actually pretty interesting because as someone that grew in the West Coast, we don't really have seasons per se, but we have more like in the East Coast, you could see like, oh, the leaves are starting to fall. That means fall is going to end soon. And then the winter you have that. And I think with spring and winter, it's kind of a painful experience because as you're going to spring, it's still cold. And mm. so when I would see these ye- bright yellow flowers starting to bloom, I that was the first flower in my neighborhood that was starting to bloom. So I said, okay, spring is really, really close around the corner. Very nice. Uh, that, that has been a little bit of a 
theme on the show. You know, I grew up in California as well, in, in um, San Diego area, and a lot of people have on the show. You know, I think when when you grow up in California, yeah, you really don't like you learn about seasons in school, but it's not something that you get until you've lived, you know, somewhere that has seasons. And so, yeah, it's a whole thing. Uh, very interesting. Yeah, no. What about um, what about foraging uh, for Scythia? Like, how how do you do that? What are they used for? Tell me, tell me about that piece. Yes, yeah, so some interesting history that I found out about Forsythia is that during the Victorian era, which is like you know centuries ago, um, the flower like flowers obviously had these special recognitions of like secret language that would be assigned to it, and the Forsythia's name or its secret language that it had was called anticipation, and the reason why it was called anticipation is that in some mythology and pagan cultures is that when that flower began to bloom, it meant that there was still at least two to three more snowfalls to expect before spring finally came. Ah. And so there was this le- there's this legend in a lot of ancient cultures and ancient history is that Forsythia is um, also connected to the four elements, which is earth, air, fire, and water. Um, and has and has this very unique um, diagram of itself. So for me, I, I think I recognize that flowers and someone that's into herbalism too, is that flowers can easily be used to make flower essence. You can make syrups with flowers and you can also slightly eat them for edibility, right? So of course you wouldn't want to eat like bunches of them, but the flower part is what makes it edible, not so much the the stem or the greenery out in the outer area of the flower. Interesting, interesting. And so... Uh, you harvest the flowers, and then what do, what do you do with them? Yeah, so if when I would harvest the flowers, um, I would take my basket, you know, and walk down the neighborhood. And I think my neighbors would see me, and they'd be like, oh, he's foraging. And, um, <laughs> you know, it, yeah. I, so basically, once you get the flower, um, one of the things I always recognize from indigenous cultures and indigenous wisdom is that you always thank the plant, you always thank the flower, and you, you know, pick um, respectfully, not get everything in bunches. But basically what you do is you get them onto your kitchen table, you let them dry out a little bit, and then you prepare your solution um, for the syrup. And that usually requires like some sugar water um, and then you having some slight syrup. And then like, you know, you can either add some maple syrup to it, um, but you want to boil the flowers first. So Mm. in a lot of um, herbalism courses, they teach you that the reason why you would either heat up the flowers or put them in a a pot with sugar water is that it obviously absorbs, it like removes away um, some of the toxicity, or sometimes in this case, it actually lets it become stronger um, Mm. smelling and it activates the essence of that flower. And so, you know, it's funny because when people think about syrup, they're thinking, oh, well, this this flower is going to produce this very thick syrup, like maple syrup or, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm, honey, mm-hmm. for example. But mm-hmm. it's actually not. It's a very liquidy um, substance. And if you, if you see, like, different types of syrups that exist, like using lavender or, like, um, rose hips, um, they're all liquid because the flower itself isn't the, – the, the syrup it has inside is in a thick substance – Mm-hmm. So um, it takes around like a day or two um, to prepare it because once you have it boiled, you want to put it in a cup and then you want to leave the flowers inside so it still absorbs. And then you want to let it cool down because you don't want to put it in your fridge instantly 
because uh, mm-hmm. that can cause a disaster. So then you you um, let it sit out for the whole night and then you put it back inside. And I think one of the things that makes it harder for anyone that does local foraging is recognizing that the reason why a lot of forage goods go to waste very soon is that there's no preservatives. Um, you know, there's a lot of unique properties, kind of like you have your own produce, right? So you have to take care of it. So they only last for like maybe a week or two in your fridge um, if it's in the refrigerated uh, time. Very, very interesting. Um, on the on the note of um, of syrup, this is an interesting thing. I and I'm I'm uh, the there's a guy who has a podcast called uh, uh, Wild Edible World. Uh, I think he goes by Edible oh. Illinois on Instagram. Really, really yeah. cool. I had him on the podcast a while back, but he he was uh, saying on his Instagram that uh, uh, I think his, his, Mike is his name. Uh, he was saying on his Instagram that there's actually maybe two different spellings of the word syrup. We call everything S Y R U P, but yeah. then there's S I R U P, and yeah. his argument is that S I R U P is more accurate to be called the syrup from a maple tree, which is produced by boiling the sap of a maple tree, and mm. S Y R U P is the sh- is the syrup we make from uh, making sugar and fruit juice or sugar and flowers, and so we've kind of like mashed them together in like modern usage. But I think originally there was like kind of a distinction in spelling to like define them, but interesting, both, both maple syrup and not, it's one of those things that like I learned cause I've, I've actually made my own syrup. I've talked about it in an episode a while back from my, I have a maple tree in my backyard, Oh but, no. but, but both, both syrups, you know, the stuff doesn't normally come out of nature in that thick variety. All of that stuff has to be concentrated. And so, like, yeah. with maple syrup, you got to boil it for, like, hours and hours and hours to get it thick. And same thing with, like, uh, these simple syrups. Like, you know, the flour is not going to give you that stuff that's, uh, thick enough to put in your pancakes right away. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's interesting that you said that because I think the syrup and then syrup, or however it's pronounced, yeah, right. Yeah. Um, you know, that, that was meant to say it comes directly from the tree bark or the inside the tree versus yeah. syrup is, yeah, like the flower petals um, that are extracted on that end. And it does take a lot of time to actually boil that water um, to get it to the right temperature. I mean, like, it, it's like kind of like you use, if you use, if you were to use like any flower to make like, example, like dandelion tea, it's like, those are the things that need to be done. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so now you have this forsythia syrup. Then, what do you do with it? What What did you do with that syrup? Yeah, I think with the forsythia syrup, it was actually interesting because um, a while back, back you know, back a few summers ago in springs, um, I started to really um, experiment with different types of syrup. So I did make lavender syrup, and I made rose hip syrup and cool. you know this is like obviously inspiration from like black forager my great friend over there but you know i i started to read more about like does it actually taste different because the 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 quest for me was to actually expand my food palette and my taste buds because i recognized that i wasn't really eating these traditional fruits and flowers that were grown locally like i didn't know that you can eat certain things so when i you know ended up actually you know making this syrup I, I said, you know, well, syrup, I can easily eat it with like pancakes. And that's something that I like to eat with. And if you ask anyone, like, you know, I'm vegan myself, but it's so easy to make pancakes like out of scratch. Like I don't really, you buy the cardboard boxes with the mm-hmm. pancake mix. I just make them already with like flour, salt, um, some chocolate chips, sugar, apple cider vinegar, 
and then you um you know you can do that and so i think for me what i would i tried to use two experiments one was like the you know how people make the cinnamon pancake swirls i tried the forsythia swirls of like trying to like have like a hint of forsythia and some cinnamon and it was actually interesting because the flavor the flavor tasted very strong in cinnamon but you can kind of taste this like very sweet slight slight sweet taste um to it and i think a lot of people like my friends would kind of freak out because they're like oh is that even edible to eat or like is that safe (laughs) to eat and i'm like yeah it's honestly super safe it's just water and some sugar it's not it's really like not that much ingredients and I think with forsythia, it had a very uh, different slight taste from lavender syrup. I think like, I don't know if anyone's ever had lavender syrup, but it, to me, it like tastes kind of um, more like uh, more potent, if I could mm-hmm, say, mm-hmm, depending mm-hmm. on how you make it. Absolutely, uh, very interesting. Um, yeah, the 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 foraging. You know, I'm I'm also have gotten into foraging the last few years myself, and it is funny how I think we've been conditioned to be afraid of wild things when, when like, that's just what food is really like, I mean, yeah, food it's a is wild fun. element. It's just, I mean, like we've, we've raised it in like, uh, and, uh, domesticated a lot of plants for, and that's what people mostly eat. But like, it, it is interesting what people's reaction. And I deal with that all the time. I'm like, Oh yeah, here's this weird thing. And I'm always serving people strange things that I make. And, um, you got to give a little convincing sometimes for sure uh, that it that it's okay yeah and you and you have to think about the ways in which we consume products but also um use it for medical purposes right like i think for Scythia, mm-hmm. it's used a lot too because it's mainly in asia region um that's using traditional chinese medicine i learned that like Mm. Um, the shrub of the flowers is used to like treat nausea and like fever for some people and there's like some research um, very minimal that research that does exist that um, it contributes to like antibacterial antiviral and anti-inflammatory properties Mm. um, that could help with like minor medical alignments and I I don't you know I'm not saying I advocate for people to go all plants but there is like alternatives to help reduce you know, um, some types of pain without have, if you don't have, like, for example, Tylenol, right? Like, let's say you don't have money or you don't have access to that. What are some alternatives to help? Yeah, that's, that's a really great point. You know, that's something I, I talk about a lot on the show and it's always a little bit of a struggle of like, you know, I definitely want to always give disclaimers to audience of like, don't just use things without understanding them first. Right. Yes. Um, but there's also a lot of traditional knowledge and old knowledge in all these plant uses forever and if you look up any plant there's always a litany of like medicinal uses but i feel like we've as a society have kind of cast that aside a lot and in some ways then lost the true like meaning of it and like so it's a complicated topic when you're talking to podcasts because like you don't want to like say yes go use this stuff but you also don't want to discount it entirely either right it's it's, yeah. it's more complicated yeah, and I think the 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 main missions for a forager perspective, and or even an herbalism perspective, it's not to quote unquote heal your body. It's more to experience um, a different relationship with the flower that you may have not known of. And so I always remind people, like, you know, it's about the relationship you build versus the outcome that you're trying to get out of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very very good point. It also reminds me back with the episode I talked um, uh, with. Uh, uh, Nancy Ray about sage and white sage. And we talked about medicine. Oh, a bit and, yeah. and, and medicine, 
in a in a in a Western context just means something you use when you're sick. But yes. but in many other cultures, the word medicine means anything that helps you, right? And uh, it's a much more nuanced and complicated word than just a bottle of pills, right? And so when people say use a plant as medicine, I feel like often there's a lot of context missing and we simplify it to like our modern medical uh, way of thinking when, when it can be broader. Like if you have a nice, uh, you know, uh, fizzy drink with some forsythia syrup and it makes you feel better that can be medicine even if it's not like like compl- directly interacting with some kind of medical pathway like a tylenol does right yeah no definitely and i think that's the thing where it's um with anyone that practices foraging or identifying or trying to build something with the plant it's an active place-based relationship so that means actually understanding that when you're going into this um, process to extract or to make something out of it or to even smell like you are creating a web of understanding of not so much to interrogate that system but to have curiosity of what it can provide to not just yourself but to the natural world Thanks, Isaiah, for sharing about forsythia with me. Do you mind if I share a plant with you? Yeah, that'd be super great. Okay, so this is kind of a group of plants, um, mostly because I'm not 100% sure about the plant that I have interacted with is, and that's because mm. it's a little bit complicated. So I'm going to be talking about grapes, but oh, I'm not wow. going to be talking about the grape we all know, which is the European grape. Vitis yeah. vinifera, the, the wine grape. That's the one all of us mostly interact with. Um, I'm talking about what I'm just going to call wild grapes, um, which is which is kind of a whole a whole thing. Now, when we when we talk about wine grapes and we talk about different kinds of wine grapes like Chardonnay or Pinot Noir, Zinfandel, those are actually all the same exact species. Those are all Vitis vinifera. They're just different varieties mm-hmm. of the same species. Um, but there, but there are actually at least seventy-nine different species of grape. So, so in the genus Vitis, but different species, which is super fascinating. And we have a bunch of them native to North America as well. Um, I talked about in a previous episode about one that's called Vitis rotundifolia, which is also known as the muscadine grape, um, or, or more specifically, the scuppernong, which I actually have growing outside my house. Ah. Um, which is a fun episode. Go back and listen to it if if you want, audience. It's an interesting one. Um, but I'm going to be talking, Scuppernong is also grows in the wild, uh, but it's also been cultivated a lot. But these three that I'm going to be talking about are mostly only found in the wild. There's not too much, um, like you won't find vineyards of these grapes. Um, the three I'm going to talk about, and mostly because, like I said, they're a little bit hard to tell apart. And when I f- found them in the past, I-, I wasn't trying to figure out what they were. I was just like, oh, those are wild grapes. Um, there's one that's called the summer grape. That is Vitis Aestivalis, which in Latin means pertaining to summer. There's also the riverbank grape, which is Vitis riparia, which means river. And then the winter grape, Vitis cinerea, which means the ashy grape, because I think the the leaves have a little bit of a powderiness that makes them look ashy. Um, All these grapes are much smaller than like the grape we think of. You know, all the grapes that you buy at the store or use for wine have been bred for years to be super big and juicy, but in the wild... They really want to be eaten by birds and, and like the grapes that you grow, you know, in agriculture are too, are too big for a bird to get. So these are much tinier grapes. Um, the, the vines can be really uh, prolific. So the, the places I've seen them, 
they just cover huge swaths of trees and, and you'll, you'll see them and they'll just be covered in grapes. But one of the challenges with wild grapes is sometimes the grapes are like 30 feet in the air because they climb a tree. And so like, oh. you really can't get them. Those are for the birds, right? You got to find the one that has got the grapes low enough that you can actually grab, which is a, an interesting challenge with them. Um, I'm going to get into specifically why they're meaningful to me. I've hinted a little bit that I've, that I've uh, forged them as we were talking before, mm-hmm. but let's talk about some interesting facts about them. Um, so there is, I, I live in Virginia, like I said, and Virginia has a wine country. And if you go to Virginia wine yeah. country, uh, there is a grape that a lot of people mention called the Norton grape. It's a variety of grape. And Norton is actually a hybrid between the European grape and Vitis Estevalis, the summer grape. So it's a, it's a hybrid mm, American and European grape, which is, is only really found um, in wine made in Virginia, which is a pretty interesting thing. This brings me to uh, probably, this is a super fascinating topic, and probably and people have probably done whole podcasts on this. I'm going to try to go quick. But does the word phylloxera mean anything to you? A phylloxera? I mean, it reminds me of the genus names of yeah. some type of plant. That's all I, I can think of. It is a genus name, but it's a genus name of, a, of an insect, phylloxera. Oh, interesting. And phylloxera is this little, tiny, almost microscopic bug that um, feeds on the uh, leaves and roots of wild American grapes. And it's mostly not a problem. However, in like the 1800s, a bunch of British dudes started bringing plants back, 17, 1800s started bringing plants from the, you know, the Americas over to England, and they brought American grapes over. And with those American grapes, they brought over the phylloxera bug, unknowingly. And that bug escaped into the wild, and the European grape, Vitis vinifera, the wine grape that has been used for wine for centuries and centuries, had no natural protections to this insect. And, uh, and because of its infection, it would end up um, feeding so much on the, on the roots, and then there would be subsequent uh, fungal infections of the roots, that it would essentially girdle the roots, which means it would cut a complete line all the way around the root and just completely kill the vine. After, If you girdle the root, the, the, the grape is dead. Yeah, because that's where it's connected to its life. Yep. Exactly. And, and uh, this is a whole huge thing. There was this mass epidemic of phylloxera in Europe um, in the 1800s and 1900s that nearly wiped out all European grapes. Wow. Uh, they estimate two-thirds to nine-tenths of all European grapes were destroyed by this bug. And is that species still alive today, or they lost a few of those unique species that were within the two-thirds of what was lost? Um, so that's a really interesting question, and like I, I'm trying not to talk t- <laughs> too much about the European grape, because this is about the American grape, yeah. and we're going to come back to that <laughs> in a second. But yeah, there definitely were some European grape varieties that were lost entirely. Um there was one interesting variety, I forget which one it was, that was growing in Argentina before Phylloxera, and they realized, oh, we, we, we thought we lost it entirely, but we rediscovered it in Argentina and then brought it back to Europe. So there's a whole interesting of like what grapes were lost. There's a whole interesting history of what little pockets in Europe the grapes survived, because they I mean, really almost, I mean, think about it, like France almost lost all their grapes. Like wine production just plummeted, plummeted um, during, during this time. And, and, and all because of this, like, you know, this cautionary tale that we, we hear a lot about these days of, like, uh, you know, 
human travel bringing unintended consequences and this ecological damage um, without because you know we don't think things through or things have unnecessary you know, have unpredictable consequences and you know no I think no one thought just by just bringing this grape from the east coast to London would unleash this havoc across this just super important industry but it did and then going back to the American grape in some ways the American grape is what caused this epidemic because the the this bug which the American grapes were um, immune to essentially they they created a sap in their roots and leaves that would gum up the mouth of the phylloxera and protect it from the damage but the European grape couldn't do that um but the American grape is kind of, well, it's humans which caused it, but it was because of the American grape that, that this happened. But it's also because of the American grapes that the whole European grape industry was saved. And it's because essentially all grape production in Europe now, they raise European grape on the rootstock of American grapes. So they graft European grapes onto American roots. And so the American roots are immune but the European grape is still growing from that root. And that's what saved the, the whole industry. It's almost like a, a Band-Aid situation. I mean, a permanent Band-Aid situation to heal the scar. But it, 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 honestly, that is insane to think about that, relying on a, that plant in America is to bring it back, that root to ensure that it wouldn't die, can continue living is insane. Yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a bonker story. Um, uh, and and yeah, uh, it's something I feel like, you know, if you talk to people in the wine industry, like everyone knows phylloxera, it was just a huge thing, you know, when it was happening. And it's still the ripple effects are still here. But we all, if you have your glass of wine and you have a glass of wine from Europe, no one really thinks about this. This That almost didn't exist anymore. European wine was almost just not a thing um, because of this. We could have destroyed un- their whole economy and become the biggest <laughs> global economy for wine is hey, what America well, could have done. Well, true, and we still have to think, we still have to, like, worry about it, though, too, because, you know, California, they grow a lot of grapes, but those are all European grapes, and the same thing, California grapes are European grapes grafted to American rootstock, and there's a whole industry, mm-hmm. I, I mentioned how, like, the American grapes aren't really grown commercially, they are, but just for the rootstock, because if you want to grow, now, in the modern world, if you want to grow European grape, you need a you need American rootstock, or you need some kind of hybridized rootstock, because the phylloxera is still here, and eventually your grapes will succumb to phylloxera because it is it is spread around the world now. There's a few pockets yeah, here and there cool. where where it hasn't made it, but uh, but like there, I was reading just today about some small regions that for whatever reason the phylloxera never made it to in Europe, but now in the last few years it finally got there and wiped out the those grapes that had you know survived that whole time. So, but that's an interesting thing. It's uh, it's it's a uh, the American grape kind of was a partially part of the problem, but was also ultimately part of the solution, which is super fascinating. Like, it's like the, it's kind of like you, original Europeans who brought it to America and then messed it up, but then America <laughs> brought it back in somewhere when there was like a disease there. And then, then with America had to come back and be like, here's our rootstock. It should be okay. Yeah, it's, it's a fascinating story of like, I mean, it's 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 a it's a cautionary tale, but it's also like hopeful as well, right? Of like, you know, there is it, it's a very it's, it's fascinating and complicated. So anyway, I wanted to share with that because I think uh, it's one of those stories that uh, that you know some people know, but it's also I think not very common knowledge. Um, uh, okay, last thing I want to share, which is more about why they are meaningful to me. These Amer- these um, wild grapes. 
Um, so there's this guy. Have you, have, do you know about this guy, Pascal Bowder or Bowder Bowder? Were they a botanist? He is a he's a he's a dude. He actually lives in L.A. I think you should follow him on Instagram and stuff. He's a, he's he's really into foraging and he's really oh. into wild crafted fermenting stuff, which is super super cool. Love fermentation. That's yeah. a whole new skill. Yeah, it's 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 amazing. And he has this book. I'm going to show you here, audience. Of course, you can't see it because this is a podcast. Um, but this is a book that was super inspiring to me. It's called The Wild Crafted Brewer. Um, and look at the beautiful pictures. I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes. It's a really great book. He has a few other books about wild-crafted fermentation. Um, but I've got into this this concept of ferment, fermenting, also wild fermenting, which is using wild yeast, not store-bought yeast. Um, I'm a yeah. I'm a beekeeper, so I make a lot of mead. I've been using the mead for my the, the honey for my bees, and I use a process to um, to raise my own yeast that is living in the honey already to create. Uh, fermented drinks without adding yeast. It's really cool. That's super dope. <laughs> but this this book um, goes a step further. And man, this book is, I mean, he this guy, is, it's amazing stuff. But he has this one section of this book which, he's, which he has entitled, uh, and this kind of goes back to something you said earlier. He says, this is uh, fermenting a beverage that represents an environment. And and he goes even he goes even more minuscule, but but when he talks about fermenting a beverage that represents an environment, he, this is the steps he has written in the book. He says one, survey the area, two, establish the flavor characteristics, and three, determine the essence of a place. And so this is the idea of like you know if you were in a certain forest and maybe there's a lot of forsythia, but there's also uh, some wild grapes and there's also some other things like what are those flavor components? And then he just has a process where he puts them into a for simple fermented beverage where you it's either like something more like a, a, a he calls it a beer which is a little bit of a loose defini- more loose definition than we're used to or yeah, a mead. Like, yeah, like the way so, that it would taste like and that yeah. Yeah, and even the taste is a little bit different. Um but but basically you're making this complicated fermented drink that is a representation of a specific place, which is, which is, and it's, he, he talks about it as being like a hyper-focused terroir, right? It's not just the terroir of a whole region. It's that terroir of like this one forest maybe, which is super, super cool. Um, And then he gets even a little more specific later in the book of talking about making a fermented drink that is, that is the representation of a hike you went on. So he's like, talks about going on a hike, collecting things as you hike, bringing them back, and making a beverage from it, and now you kind of have this drink that is kind of the a, a a portrait of your hike, which I thought was super super cool. And so that's what I did. I was inspired by this book, and so a while back, I was uh, uh, last September. I was in um, I was in uh, I was on a foraging walk. There's a local guy here in um, in the DC area. Uh, name his, goes by Matt's Habitats, and I've been on a few of his foraging walks, and we were in this area along the Potomac River, and there was just tons of these wild grapes. And I remember this book, which I had just been reading, and I was like, I'm going to do this. So I collected a bunch of the wild grapes as the primary ingredient, but I also collected some wild ginger, which is a, a is an interesting plant around here, some jewelweed, some smartweed buds, and then one wood ear mushroom. Oh, I yes, put it wood all, ears, yeah. 
Yeah. I put all these grapes in a jar smashed up with all these other ingredients. I use maple sh- a maple syrup as the sugar source instead of honey in this case. Mm. And then I added yeast, which I've been um, which I cultivated from my mead. So it's mead yeast mixed it in. I put it in a jar. I let it ferment for uh, about a month. And then I poured this just beautiful, I'll, I'll put pictures in the show notes, this beautiful purplish, reddish, fizz, slightly fizzy, very tasty drink that is like nothing you can find in the store. It's like, you know, when you start fermenting your own stuff, you're like, oh, this is like something, you know, it's definitely like funky. Like it's true, not, it's true soda. True soda. Yeah, true nature. soda and true like you know, truly unique. And then I served it to, I, I, we had a party in uh, last October and um, I had a bunch of different meads and different kinds of fermented things I made and I served to a bunch of people, but this one was everyone's favorite, actually. This one that was like this complicated, strange representation of a hike I went on in, in, the, in September, which I thought was super cool. Now, that is something I want to make and I think that would destroy the soda industry for sure. <laughs> <laughs> for yeah, for, yeah, for sure. Yeah, definitely check out this book and 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 yeah. I mean, you should connect with with. You have to guy send it to me. Yeah, you'll yeah, have to send yeah. it to me because I I I've been really curious about processes around fermentation and trying to make my own you know bread or just like fermenting plants and what they would taste like and that's a whole new landscape. Yeah, it's super cool. And you know, with the with this, you know, I'm really interested in making these like alcoholic beverages. You can also do versions that are just more like a soda that that you can, if you do it right, you the alcoholic component is not there. Um, but when you make your own alcoholic drink, it's a whole. It, it makes you think about how it was done in the past, and when it's not done in this commercial scale that is that is designed to be as high alcohol content as possible, you're essentially just like making something so you can preserve these ingredients. And that's what alcohol does. And like when you make something like this, like I don't even know what the alcohol content of this beer was. It was probably, if I was lucky, 4%. It could have been 3 It could have been 2 Like you have no control over that. Re- I mean, a little bit. But you're not. that's not what you're trying to do when you're making a wild fermented drink. You're just trying to like, it, it's a great way to like, I feel like respect the ingredients by like mm-hmm. merging them together in this natural process. And it's it's super cool. It's uh, yeah, I've been really into it uh, for. The well, it makes you, it makes years. you think that those are the natural fusions, and they complement each other to be able to make a good dish. And that goes back to this idea that those plants and flowers that are you know substances that we find in the forest from the their chemical properties like are meant to be together. Absolutely, uh, I think that was very well said. I think it's a great way to wrap up this episode. Thanks for joining me. Thank you again for having me. What did the green grape say to the purple grape? Breathe, you idiot. Well, that was just a wonderful conversation with Isaiah talking about the wild grape and the forsythia. And before we close, I got a couple things that I want to just uh, talk about here at the end. Um, the first is I, one thing I missed in the wild grape segment, is, and is, I think this is pretty important, is uh, there are a few toxic lookalikes to wild grape. And so if you're going to go out there and forage, you should know about these. Also, if you're going to go out and forage anything, make sure you consult a local expert. Make sure you uh, are are confident in your knowledge of plant identification. It's, it's something very, very important. Uh, but in addition, 
there are at least three plants that are sometimes commonly mistaken for wild grapes, so here's those plants so you know them. The first one is pokeweed. I think this one looks the most different from wild grape, but for the uneducated person, it does have these these like dark purple berries. I talk about this in episode, I think episode seven of the podcast. It's a really cool plant. I like it, but the berries are very toxic and you should not eat them. Um, uh, but it does look quite different. So look that up. The second one is one that I haven't talked about the podcast yet, but I'm very familiar with it because it grows in my yard and it's a little bit the bane of my existence. It's called porcelain berry and porcelain berries leaves look very much like wild grape, but the berries, um, have this kind of more like matte multicolored look to them and they also kind of point up instead of down um so once you recognize that it's pretty easy to tell the difference uh they're in the same family as grape but not in the same genus and then third there's a plant that I actually never seen in the wild um but it looks quite like it uh particularly the berries it's called moon seed and um like I said, I haven't seen it in person, so I'm not sure how to uh, really describe the differences to you. But apparently, the prime difference has to do with that seed. In the wild grape, has has several small, like, oval grape seeds in it, whereas the moon seed has one crescent-shaped seed. And I think that's why they call it moon seed. So, just forager beware. Those are the uh, toxic lookalikes to wild grape. And just in general, take responsibility, learn about the plants, uh, be in a relationship with them and, like like Isaiah said, uh, kind of examine that relationship between yourself and the plants before you begin to forage so you're safe and you kind of gain that knowledge. And speaking of knowledge, back to epistemology, I had another one of those moments like I talked about at the beginning of the show. One thing that Isaiah mentioned about forsythia is that it produces lactose, which kind of breezed by me when in the conversation. But as I was thinking about it later, I was like, oh, that's very interesting because lactose is the sugar that is present in the milk of mammals and it's pretty interesting if a plant creates that. So I started to go down this rabbit hole about that and I'm even more confused now than I was before. It, it's, it's one of those things, if you Google, you'll find plenty of resources that say forsythia is one of the only plants that produces lactose and then you'll find other things that say forsythia does not produce lactose at all and that is uh, uh, not true and it's a common myth. But getting to the core of where that myth came from, why people believe that, where did it come from, or is it a myth and it is true and why people believe that it is not true is pretty tricky. Um, I did find a reference to a scientific article from 1949 that specifically mentions uh, forsythia having lactose, but I found other articles that kind of debunk that, but they don't describe what it is there's like one reference to a sugar that might be similar to lactose but not quite the same there is also a molecule called galactose ga lactose that is present in many plants that's that is separate from lactose and it's and and so maybe there's a just a name confusion thing but anyway i'm not clear whether or not it has lactose i think i am clear that forsythia is a cool plant and uh and is an interesting plant and and has lots of interesting uses um but the epistemological challenge of whether or not it has lactose is very interesting, and it's something it's hard to get to the bottom of, even when we have the world at our fingertips. So uh, I think I'll leave you with that. It's, it's an interesting challenge to know things, even in this modern day. Uh, but I hope you learned a little something on today's episode. And if you uh, want to share anything with me about what you learned, please send me an email, rootboundpodcast at gmail.com. And with that, we will end the show. Thanks for listening.
My guest on this episode of Rootbound was Isaias Hernandez. Isaias is an environmental educator and the digital media creator of Queer Brown Vegan. You can learn more about Isaias at QueerBrownVegan.com. If you like Rootbound and you want to help support the show, you can visit RootboundPodcast.com support to find all the ways you can support the show. There's a link to the Patreon there and a bunch of other stuff. Thanks. Rootbound is hosted by the epistemological podcaster Steve Ellington. Music by Christian Krigascota. Fake ads by David Lani. Rootbound is a podcast about plants for when you're stuck inside, but if you can go outside, you could make your first foray into foraging when the forsythia is in bloom. Basil, making pesto possible.